The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is sponsored by James Oliver Coffee Company at jamesolivercoffee.com. James Oliver is a second-generation family-owned and Detroit-based coffee roaster, offering 19 different blends of freshly roasted coffee. The company pioneered link temperature roasting, and they source the best beans from around the world to create an outstanding coffee experience, no matter which beans you choose. To start, try the alma mater blend. James Oliver Coffee gives $5 for each bag of its alma mater blend to the Detroit Public Schools Foundation. And don't forget, use the promo code CFSHOW, that's CFSHOW, to get 15% off your first order. James Oliver Coffee, available at select grocery stores in Metro Detroit and, of course, at jamesolivercoffee.com. Remember, use the promo code CFSHOW to get 15% off your first order. That's jamesolivercoffee.com. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Very glad to have you with me today. And a really important discussion about to take place. Obviously, over the last couple of days, we have seen President Trump both enter and exit Walter Reed Hospital. There are lots of questions about whether or not he is still carrying uh, the virus with him, uh, what treatments that he got. But if there's one thing that we have seen is that there is a difference in the quality of health care that is available to you depending on your station in life. This is not a shock to anybody, but it is something that was glaringly obvious over the last few days, especially after we have a president who is now tweeting out, don't fear coronavirus. Well, it's easy not to fear something when you have a team of doctors of every specialty under the sun who are watching over you 24-7. What about the rest of us? What needs to be done to make sure we have more equity in our healthcare system, especially in the age of a pandemic? Well, my next guest has a few thoughts on this. It is Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He, of course, is a graduate of the University of Michigan. He's a Rhodes Scholar, got his medical school degree at Columbia, where he also taught. He's the former health department director in the city of Detroit, former candidate for governor on the Democratic side in Michigan, representing the more progressive wing of the party. He is my guest right now. Doctor, welcome to the Craig Folly Show. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Craig, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, and again, you know, I wanted to use what we've witnessed the last couple of days as an example because it really is that sort of shining example of inequities in the healthcare system. And I just want to get your thoughts before we get into uh, your book and your prescriptions for all these sorts of problems that we have. To, to ask you what was going through your mind as you watched what happened when the president got out of the limo yesterday, had the photo op up at the White House, um, took off the mask and walked back inside the house. Yeah, it's the height of hypocrisy. Um, this is a man who is actively engaged in a project of trying to strip away 23 million people of their health insurance in the middle of a pandemic that his inaction and his failure helped to precipitate. And all the while, he's benefiting from the best government health care you can possibly have, which is his own medical team and his own suite of rooms at Walter Reed uh, Military Medical Center. And uh, to me, it just it is an indictment of who this man is and his inability to understand uh, what the rest of us are experiencing. And so uh, I just, you know, I, I, it, it's hard, right? Because this is a time of superlatives. You talk about this man and you say, well, uh, how, could it get any any worse? Could he be uh, any more mendacious? And um, every day the news delivers something else that he does or says that reminds you that for him, this is about the raw pursuit uh, of personal aggrandizement and power uh, to the expense of the rest of us. You know, and, and you take a look at, you mentioned, of course, the, the government health care that he is getting. He is indeed. But 
again, the team of physicians he has working for them. If you look at the press conferences they have, they have an immunologist there. Uh, they have an epidemiologist there. They have somebody who deals with infectious diseases. Uh, they have somebody who deals with pulmonary issues. They have somebody who deals with heart issues, everything. Uh, and there are, uh, again, these are experts in their field who are watching over every single little thing that happens to him. This is not the typical healthcare experience uh, for somebody who is on Medicaid or Medicare or even on private insurance in this country. Yeah, not even close. Um, you know, none of us uh, get access to that level of concierge care. The irony of this, Craig, though, is that um, even despite having this this team, this personalized team of doctors, what's pretty clear is that Donald Trump is getting uh, questionable care at best. And that's not because of the doctors. That's because of the patient. Um, you know, there is this well-documented VIP syndrome uh, where um, when you have somebody who's a VIP and they are uh, bombastic about the care that they demand, um, they tend not to get the best care because they trump, literally in this case, uh, their care team. And, um, you know, had, had Donald Trump been my patient, uh, the minute he self-discharged to take a joyride uh, and, and wave to a bunch of folks while uh, putting his own secret service detail at risk, I would have asked, well, you know, it must be that this, this man's ailments are not simply physical. They, they are probably mental as well. Um, and then, you know, the choice to go home, you got to ask whether or not that was made by his care team uh, or that was made by him with the political considerations trumping the science. Because if you looked at him and watched him uh, on his balcony there doing his best uh, Mussolini fascist wave or salute, um, you, you know, he was struggling to breathe. And, you know, as a physician, one of the things you're taught to look for in medical school is uh, what we call the recruitment of the strap muscles, those muscles in your neck. Um, uh, and when those muscles in your neck are bulging, when you breathe, what's pretty clear is that you're still in respiratory distress. And so you, you look at this president and it's pretty clear that even despite himself and despite the care team that he has around him, he cannot get out of his own way because he puts his politics uh, ahead of the public health and ahead of the medicine and ahead of the science. Um, and that doesn't work when you're talking about one patient. Uh, and it doesn't work when you're talking about a whole population. That's the same logic that's left us with 210,000 people dead of COVID-19 in this country and uh, a, a loss of livelihoods that it's going to take us a decade uh, to recover from. Well, you talk about getting ahead of the science, um, and you are, of course, an epidemiologist. Your job is to figure out what's causing these problems, how they work. Uh, this is what you do. And, and it seems to me that we still do not have a really great sense as to exactly how this virus uh, affects the body, which different systems it can attack. And, and every patient seems to be a little bit different on this one. Uh, where we are right now, we're working to, to find a virus for it, obviously, but without a full understanding of how this virus works, is it possible to come up with something that is going to be effective for all patients? Look, we're learning more and more about the virus every single day. And, um, you know, if you think about it, the, the speed at which we are learning about this virus is unprecedented. We've never had a situation like this before where uh, we've been faced uh, with a new virus that hits humanity uh, and causes a pandemic, you know, from, from the time of uh, jumping to the first human being to, uh, to, to, to where we are now has been less than a year. And so you're right, we're still learning. But a lot of what we have learned, if we were willing to put into practice, could be used to lasso this pandemic down. We know that it, it can be spread by people who are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, so we should be wearing masks. We know that uh, lockdowns in the time of increases in COVID-19 are critical to bringing down transmission. We know that if we wash our hands, 
uh, and we stay uh, physically distant from people, that it can reduce the risk of transmission. These are all things that we know. The problem um, is that we are almost ignoring what we know uh, because of one person's and one group's agenda uh, politically to, um, to to undermine and, uh, and, and, and dissuade the American people uh, from being able to follow that very logical, scientifically sound public health advice. The other part of this is that, you know, we will uh, likely have a vaccine on board uh, within the next six months. However, there's a difference between a vaccine and a vaccination, right? A vaccine is a theoretical existence of a thing that we know will cause an immune response in a body. But a vaccination is when people choose to put that thing in their body. And to do that, people have to trust the vaccine. And I worry a lot about whether or not uh, people trust this vaccine. If you look in poll after poll, the majority of American people uh, actually say that if there was a vaccine today, they would not take it. And in order for this vaccine to have its full effect in our population, we know that 70 to 90 percent of people have to choose to take it. And so this politics um, and this trumping of, uh, of, of science by politics uh, is unfortunately not just hurting us now, keeping us from doing the things that we can do to lasso this pandemic now, but it has the potential to get in the way of what we can do in the future. Well, well, doctor, your latest book, and I think the title of this is actually really, really important. It's called Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. And and it certainly seems to me that, that something like an epidemic or a pandemic is the type of thing that normally would bring a country together, you know, looking out for your neighbors, looking out for each other and trying to find a way to combat this thing together. Yet we allowed politics to invade the public health space in a way that I don't think I've ever seen. Now, I wasn't around for the 1917 Spanish flu, uh, but at the same time, it seems to be hampering our ability to effectively deal with this. And, and people are almost proud of the fact that they are obstructing uh, progress in some capacity. And I don't want to aspire motives to this, but how do we once again wrestle the public health sphere from the political sphere? Yeah, um, this is this is a really, really serious challenge. I actually just interviewed Bill Nye, the science guy, on uh, my podcast. And, and we were talking about the um, failure that we've had in our society to, to do the basic uh, investment in science literacy that we've needed to be able to take this on. You know, people sort of think about this moment as one side versus the other side. That's not how this works. There is science and objective evidence, and then there's opinion. And opinion should never trump science and objective evidence. And unfortunately, in this moment, uh, because science literacy in our society is so low, and because politicization is so high, uh, we've seen the exact opposite. You know, the, one of the points that I make in the book is that in order to understand why people do what they do, we have to have the empathy to understand uh, what they are suffering that leads them to do it. And I, you know, when I when I see folks um, politicizing the pandemic or rejecting basic scientific evidence and scientifically uh, driven public health interventions or uh, calling the thing a hoax, my question is, why is it that you so mistrust all of the objective sources of truth in our society that you are willing to say and do this and put your own family at risk because of it? And I think that we need to be asking those questions big picture as we move beyond this to, to make sure that we are in a position where we truly can say never again. Because I do think that we have, unfortunately, in our society, forgotten a whole swath of people um, and, you know, and frankly, looked down on a whole swath of people without investing in basic science literacy, without investing in the quality of local institutions that folks need to trust um, in order to, 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 to believe what they're hearing. And 
uh, and that's all coming back and hitting us hard now. And moving forward from this, it's not just enough to beat COVID-19. We've got to really invest uh, in uh, science literacy, in uh, local public education, in uh, access to basic resources um, in so many of these communities uh, so that we're never in a position again where COVID-19 hits communities as hard as it does and where folks are just fundamentally ill-equipped uh, to engage this debate and, and understand and appreciate uh, the science that goes into to, to the uh, interventions that, that have to save us all. Well, it certainly seems as if the debate we're having right now is somewhat predictable, if you want to just base it on the discussions we had over climate change for the last uh, decade and a half. Uh, and, and the fact that you've got, you know, people who are willing to believe that uh, one fifth of one percent uh, that disagrees with the uh, consensus on an issue and finds a way to magnify that point of view to get people to believe it. And, and I guess the other real problem I have with this is that politicians are willing to allow their own opinions and their own decisions on this to be swayed by what the voters are hearing as opposed to what they're hearing from the experts. How, you know, as somebody who is technically an expert when it comes to medical issues, how do you reassert that authority uh, in the public's mind to get them to understand that, hey, we're not doing this for any political reasons. This is to save your life. Well, I, I think three things are key. Um, one of the mistakes that I think science communicators make is that we assume everybody communicates the same way about science as we do. And um, you know, I, I tell folks that when I when I when I got a PhD in, in in epidemiology and public health, I was I was going through a process of being mismented. And what I mean by mismented is taught to think in very empirical ways about how the world works rather than the traditional ways in which we usually think about the world, which is through stories, right? For most of our existence as a species, we told stories to, 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 uh, to communicate basic ideas. And um, we've got to remember to tell the story behind the science uh, and to put our evidence and our arguments in stories that are a lot easier to, to digest. That's number one. Number two, um, we've got to keep saying it, right? Uh, sometimes I think there is a sense that like, well, I already said that and we're good, right? No, no, no. You've got to keep saying it. The, the, one, of the, one of the things that Trump does really well when he tells a lie is he just keeps says it, saying it, right? And there's this psychological effect called the illusory truth effect, which is that when you hear something said multiple times, you start to believe it being to be true. And so if you know the liars are going to keep telling their lies, we've got to keep telling the truth. And then the third, the third part of this that I think is really important is to not say it uh, in an aggressive or scary way, you know, most of the most of the misinformed, right? I, I sort of break misinformation into two groups. There's the misinformants and the misinformed, and most of the folks in the world who are misinformed are are liable to be misinformed because they're scared. And if you're yelling at someone who's scared, that's the best single way to get them to shut down around what you're saying. So we've got to stop condescending people. We've got to stop. Uh, yelling at people. And what we need to do uh, is meet them where they are and keep coming with a level of empathy and with the truth and saying it over and over and over again, shared in stories that people can extract wisdom from. Um, and I think if we're smarter about the way that we communicate our truth, it really can beat the falsehood. But um, the, 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 the problem is that uh, the, the falsehoods are being communicated in, uh, in, 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 in much easier to grasp ways um, in, uh, you know, in, in, from, from informants that people uh, tend to trust when they're afraid uh, and all the time. And we've got to do a better job at, at telling our truth all the time in ways people can engage and with a smile uh, and an empathic view on our face. 
Well, you talk about empathy, Doctor, uh, and I should remind folks, my guest right now is Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Again, you may recall he's a former candidate for governor here in Michigan. He's on CNN these days. He's got his own podcast as well. Quickly, the name of your podcast, sir. Let him know. America Dissected. There you go. And you can find it just about anywhere you get podcasts. But it's a, it's a worthwhile listen, everybody. Um, but uh, I, I want to get back to this empathy question here. Uh, getting people to be empathetic for others seems to be sort of antithetical to what we have been taught over the last three or four decades in this country, starting in the in the me, me 1980s, really, and going mm-hmm. forward that, you know, take care of yourself first. You can worry about others later in some capacity if you feel like it. But, but it really has become, I think, a less selfless society. Uh, and and for a lot of different reasons, because it is getting tougher to get by for average people. It is getting tougher to make ends meet for a lot of folks. Uh, and so when they see their own situation and they see themselves struggling, it seems that it's it's a lot difficult, more difficult to convince them that there is still a common good they need to worry about. Yeah, that's right. And um, and that's the thing is I actually think that a lot of the frustration and the anger that people have right now is actually quite justified within the positionality of where they live and how their circumstances exist. And, you know, the point that you made about the 80s is really important. You know, at that point, um, there was a falsehood sold to the American people that markets can do everything better. And what we've seen is that the basic means of a dignified life, whether it's housing or healthcare or infrastructure or, um, you know, the right to vote uh, a job, these um, have been sold off to the highest bidder, um, sequestered by corporations, to the exclusion of the poorest people in our in our country, and to the extraction of the rest of us, um, and all of that so that they can make a profit. And the frustrating thing that I think a lot of people are engaging with is the fact that, you know, it's getting harder and harder to live. Um, and there is an anger there um, and a frustration there. Now, the question is, You've got two groups. You've got one group that tells these angry people that the reason that they're suffering is because of those other people over there, right? You name the group, right? Those other people over there uh, are getting all the handouts. They're coming to your country and taking your jobs. And there are some of us who are saying, well, actually, this is a systems problem. And we've got to fix the system because it has left a, 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 the means by which those who have can continue to extract um, and, you know, and, 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 and leveraged uh, corporate greed against the rest of us. And I think the problem is that you've got folks like uh, like like uh, Donald Trump and, and his acolytes who are win- willing to demagogue to people who are angry and afraid about their future. And um, they are, in some respects, among certain groups of people winning uh, the debate about why um, these things are happening. And um, we all know that they're wrong. We all know that what they're saying is not true. We all know that what they're saying is extremely dangerous. And worst of all, it hurts the people uh, who uh, who it's who 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 are are perpetrating it, who are uh, listening to it and believing it, um, and it hurts all the rest of us. And so uh, we have a responsibility to uh, stand up to that kind of demagoguery uh, and bring the truth. But I fear that. Um, if we are unwilling to acknowledge the baseline frustration that so many people have uh, with their lives right now and the system that caused it, um, that we won't be able to reverse it. You know, I, I, this is, I think, indicative of how big a problem you're going to have going forward, not just you, but but uh, any progressive politician, especially those that are advocating for Medicare for all. Uh this is such a boogeyman subject, right? Uh, creeping socialism. Uh, they equate it to dictatorships uh, and things that have happened in third world countries. And it's not that at all. It's a safety net medical system uh, that most countries 
around the world operate with. You've got your next book is going to be focusing a lot on this and, and educating people on really the basics of this. This is not a complete change over the healthcare system. It's increasing access for most people, but it is not something that is fundamentally going to degrade the quality of your life. And this is this is where they have been so successful is scaring people to death that somehow they are going to die or get worse coverage if indeed we actually cover the entire population. You talk about not, you know, yelling at people, uh, making sure that you're communicating on the right level. How do you do that in an issue that already is so far behind the eight ball from the public perception uh, perspective? Yeah, I think most of all, you've got to meet people where they are. <clears throat> and the reason people are so worried about changes to the health my healthcare system is paradoxical. It, most people's healthcare plan sucks. Exactly. Right. Is that is that this is the thing is that because it sucks already. People assume that any change is going to make it suck worse. <laughs> and so you got to meet people where, where they are and say, listen, I get that it sucks. Like, that's why we need to change it. And if we're willing to address at the very core, right, the, the source of the suckiness of our healthcare system, then we may actually be able to get something that does not suck. In fact, could be really great. And look at all of the other examples of places that have done this. But here's the, the thing about insecurity and the insecurity of this moment is that it's self-defeating, right? Is that when you're so afraid of, uh, of, of, of losing more, then you tend to, uh, you, t you tend to back away from change that could actually make things better. Um, and it tends to be uh, a, a frustrating backward cycle. And so we've got to be able to break out of this insecurity in this moment uh, to achieve and to reach for something that's better. But I will tell you this. I actually think the, the, that history and the future are on our side. And the reason why is because I spent a lot of my time talking to young folks um, who have watched as you know their parents lost their health care in the Great Recession. They've watched as our health care system writ large failed uh, it's, it's, it's basic test, uh, of keeping us covered and healthy in the midst of uh, a pandemic. And they know that the system that was created in the past is unsustainable. It's ineffective, it's inefficient, um, and that it needs to change. And, and it's why I think, you know, part of that is just watch it, letting, uh, th these young folks, um, grow up and, 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 and take on the mantle of leadership, uh, and build the kind of society that we need uh, moving forward. And so it is an uphill battle. People are really afraid. But I also think that um, people are watching as, you know, the, the system has indicted itself and uh, we need justice. And that means we need change. Well, you mentioned that the system indicted itself. And, and I obviously we're going to be studying this pandemic for, for decades uh, to come. But we've already uh, seen some of the disparities in the healthcare system and, and different communities uh, impacted by COVID in, in ways that I, I guess were predictable. Um, you know, uh, but from your perspective, what is the greatest single thing that we have uncovered as a result of this when it comes to disparities in the healthcare system? Because, you know, to see African American communities and Hispanic communities hit as hard as they were, especially in the early days of this. Uh, I, I think speaks volumes for the job that Michigan did and Dr. Joni Caldoun and, and the governor did in terms of getting Michigan under control after that early outbreak, especially in the black community. Uh, but but it shows that we if we took care of these things earlier, it seems to me, uh, preventive care, access to care, we could have uh, prevented a lot of what we've seen. Yeah. And I got to say, um, the, the governor and her team have done. Uh, an excellent job considering the circumstances. And, um, you know, it's a big reason why our state has been so much safer than other states. And, you know, I, I look at the Supreme Court uh, decision that would take away uh, her emergency powers and her, her, her emergency orders. 
And I know that that's going to make us less safe and less healthy. Um, look, you know, I, I think what we need to be thinking about is the way that um, biomedicine uh, has somewhat sterilized what we think of when we think of disease. Because we're also focused on the way the coronavirus operates, the pathology that happens underneath the skin, that we forget to pay attention to the way that society operates and the pathology above the skin. Because if you want to know who's affected the hardest and who gets uh, whose lives and livelihoods are most likely to be lost, it has nothing to do with the way coronavirus uh, sickens the cells in your bodies. It has everything to do uh, with the way that our society allocates basic access to scarce resources um, away from low-income people, away from people of color, uh, and leaves them without the means of being able uh, to prevent illness and, and the consequences of illness. And so, you know, think about an outcome that has nothing to do with coronavirus, like infant mortality, right? The disparity in coronavirus was about two and a half times the probability of both getting sick of and dying of COVID-19 uh, if you were a black. But that's exactly the same probability of, 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 of an infant dying before the age of one. And these two things biologically are unrelated. In fact, COVID-19 doesn't really affect infants. Um, but they are extremely related sociologically. And so what I do hope that as we step back after this pandemic is to realize that there was an underlying set of pandemics that we had ignored for a very long time, uh, including systemic racism, including profound insecurity in our country, that uh, that the, the pandemic of COVID-19 came crashing into that created these deep disparities that, that, that were experienced uh, that left black and brown Americans suffering disproportionately, both uh, the, the the loss of lives, but also the loss of livelihoods that, that unfortunately folks we know are probably not going to be able to come back from, even if they survived and their family survived for the next decade. Um, and this shouldn't be that way. And it's about a set of choices that we make about how we pattern access to good education, access to good housing, uh, access to healthcare itself, uh, access to clean air and clean water. Um, which we know systematically we rob from low-income communities of color. Uh, and, and and that's just wrong. It was wrong before COVID-19. It is wrong during COVID-19. It will be wrong after COVID-19. And unless we're willing to take on the immorality of that, uh, then we will not have been serious about actually addressing what COVID-19 showed us. Well, doctor, I, I want to give you an opportunity to answer this question to, to wrap things up because we've been going for quite a while and I appreciate your time very much. But you know, I don't know what's going to happen on November 3rd. Uh, I know where I want things to go, and I know where <laughs> your political leanings are here. Uh, we'd like to see some change at the top here. What would be the first thing you would do uh, if indeed uh, you were in that situation where you could alter federal policy to deal with this? What is something that you think the federal government could do to right the ship a little bit in terms of the public trust and also in terms of helping get a handle on this virus? Yeah, I'll give you a couple. Number one, uh, universal uh, mask ordinance, uh, immediately federal mask ordinance. Number two, uh, I would create very clear standards about when and if different institutions had the lockdown, uh, given uh, numbers related to test positivity and, and COVID-19 transmission. Uh, number three, I would start working immediately uh, on uh, getting universal access to rapid testing everywhere in the country. Um, I would really, really be focused on the pipelines regarding the vaccine. Uh, and working to put um, put uh, scientists and and in in public health policy people up front on this conversation uh, because they are more credible on this issue and will lead with the science. Um, and then finally, uh, I would be invested deeply uh, in another round of 
uh, of, of COVID-19 stimulus and, uh, and support. People shouldn't be losing uh, their apartments, shouldn't be losing their livelihoods, shouldn't be losing their businesses uh, because our country has failed to deal with this pandemic and we've got to make, thing, make things right and make people whole. Well, quick follow-up to that, though. Uh, as far as a vaccine is concerned, if and when it's available, how do you guarantee that those who are most in need of that vaccine are front of the line to get it and that it doesn't become a situation where it gets hoarded for those that can afford it as opposed to those who need it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a lot of considerations here, right? Um, number one, obviously, healthcare workers are going to need to be right up there at the front of the line. They're the ones who are most at risk, but also making sure that you have the buy-in of local communities that have been hit the hardest because they should be next in line. Um, and you know that that includes our seniors and that includes uh, low income and in uh, and communities of color. And um, at the same time, though, there's an issue where. Uh, unfortunately, communities of color have been mistreated um, when it comes to the biomedical enterprise in general in the past. And so there's got to be a lot of trust that we build up um, working with local community leaders to talk about uh, why uh, a vaccine ought to be deployed uh, quickly and efficiently in those communities, not to test it because it's already been tested, but to protect communities um, uh, from the consequences of, of this uh, virus. Um, and then, you know, importantly, right, there should be no ability to cut in line, right? Like people should uh, should be uh, given this vaccine based on what we understand about their prior risk. Um, and just because you're rich, just because you're powerful doesn't mean uh, that you should get uh, better or faster access uh, to this vaccination. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it right there for today, but we will have you back on the program, sir. Uh, and I look forward to hopefully getting you on uh, the week that was that we do on Fridays here on uh, Deadline Detroit and the Craig Folly Show. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, continued success, sir. Craig, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your voice in this time. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, of course, he's the former director for the health department for the city of Detroit, ran for governor here in Michigan, and uh, obviously contributor to CNN podcast as well. So we appreciate him coming on the program to give us his perspective. I want to say thank you to you as well for listening to this interview today. I certainly do appreciate that very much. All the comments are welcome. All of the thoughts about what we should be doing on this program are welcome. Shoot me an email, thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. Find me on social media. Leave your comments there. I appreciate it. A huge thanks to my sponsor as well, James Oliver Coffee, jamesolivercoffee.com, a Detroit-based coffee roaster. Uh, you can find their stuff in a number of better grocery stores around Metro Detroit, but you can also order it directly online and have it shipped to your house. It takes usually a day or two. It's awesome. And um, I have fresh coffee all the time now. I've been buying it. It's delicious. Uh, and there are a bunch of different varieties to choose from. So uh, I highly recommend you give them uh, a look. And don't forget... When you do buy something, and everybody knows fresh coffee is better than the stuff you just buy in the can, it just is when you grind it yourself, or even if you have them grind it for you, it's vacuum sealed, it's going to be delicious when you get it, um, it's just better. Treat yourself to something, as we are probably not traveling out as often as we used to, and coffee, hey, it's something that I like to reward myself with because it is a big part of my day. Anyway, thanks to jamesolivercoffee.com. They have a promo code as well that you can use. It's CF Show. CF Show. Put it in there when you're checking out. You'll get 15% off your first order from them. That's a way to thank them for sponsoring this program. It's a way to, for, for you know, hey, just to take care of a locally based Detroit company that's doing good work. I appreciate it there. So take advantage of that promo code. Give it a try. I think you'll like it very much. All right, a reminder coming up tomorrow. 
tomorrow is Friday. You may be listening to this on another day, but tomorrow is Friday, the week that was on Deadline Detroit. We are going to take a look at all the big stories of the week, which of course include the vice presidential debate, which many of us watched last night. I was actually sort of shocked that we saw a real debate. Yeah, there were lots of interruptions, but it was nothing like what we saw with President Trump. Meanwhile, President Trump says he doesn't want to waste his time by doing a virtual debate if that's the the way that they decide to go for the next one. So we don't know if he's going to show or not next week. Personally, I'd watch it again just to see what happens. But to have him, you know, virtual where they could shut off his microphone puts him at a disadvantage, I think. So therefore, he doesn't want to do that. And I don't blame him, to be honest with you, because I don't think he can... I don't think he can be himself if he's actually constrained in any way. Uh, And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know, but we'll find out. Uh, There's a lot of other dumb stuff that happened this week as well that we will get to. So the week that was coming up at 1130 on Friday. We do it live on Facebook Live on both my personal page and also the Craig Folly Show page on Facebook. Look that one up because if you watch it there live you can actually comment live and we'll see those comments and we can add them to the broadcast so your thoughts get added to the conversation which is always a big deal we like that and everybody else who's watching can see it as well that show is also made into a podcast as well every friday so you can always download it listen to the audio anytime you like and boy those numbers are going in the right direction that's awesome again rate it share it all that kind of stuff review it let me know what you think because it all helps and gets us on the radar uh, we showed up for some reason on the charts in Taiwan not too long ago. Don't know what I... I must have had some sort of episode on that was uh, engaging to them, but um, yeah. It's like number 52 in Taiwan. Very strange. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow, everybody, for the week that was on Deadline Detroit. I'm Craig Folly. Have a fantastic day. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit. Deadline Detroit has some of the best journalists in the city. We're asking you to support independent local journalism by joining our $3 a month membership. By joining, you become eligible to win prizes, including tickets for sporting events and gift cards to some of Detroit's best restaurants. Just go to our website and click the ad at the top or go to www.deadlinedetroit.com membership.